Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast, where we want to give you tips on staying healthy and even expose common myths about health and aging so you can enjoy a healthier and active life in the amazing South Sound. Brought to you by Dr. Jennifer Penrose, owner of Penrose & Associates Physical Therapy. Welcome to the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast. My name is Dr. Jennifer Penrose and with me today is Dr. K. And I'm going to let her pronounce her name so I don't mess it up. <laughs> I have a uniquely challenging name for some reason. My name is Erin Kershisnik. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks um, for having me. She's the owner of Vantage Physicians, which is a family practice in the form of what's called today direct primary care or what it was known at one point kind of like concierge medicine. So today we're going to hear her story of why she chose family medicine and then her journey of how she eventually opened Vantage Physicians. And then later, the real topic and theme today, which I think will be kind of fun, is talking about how much alcohol is safe with hard liquor, beer, wine. Um, and it'll just be a, an interesting and I think very applicable topic to, to <laughs> staying healthy and knowing more about that. So first of all, just kind of go back in time and tell us a little bit of how you decided even to go into medical school. It's a kind of a boring story, Jennifer. That's okay. <laughs> I was a sophomore in high school and we had to do the, you know, sort of career class and we had to research and write an essay on two different careers. I picked English professor and physician assistant. And as with everything, I had my father proofread my essays and he said, okay, very good. No typos, blah, blah, blah. But why don't you just be a doctor instead? And in my little sophomore brain, I just said, okay. And I kind of was just on the track off to the races from then on. Yeah, just ran with it. It's like parents are important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And did you have any other interests or debates over it? It really was pretty straightforward. Once I decided, you know, all of the sciencey parts of my brain and the, the caring and helping parts of my brain fit together so perfectly that actually college was terrifying. I have no other choices. I have no plan B. What if I don't get into medical school? Um, and so yeah. I really, I'm not a very creative person, apparently. It fit, though. Everything fit. It all worked out. Yeah. <laughs> I chose physical therapy early on as well. And yeah. it was one of those, there was no backup plan. It just fit. Yeah. So similar. Thank huh. goodness the world let us do what we wanted to do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then why did you choose Medical College of Pennsylvania? I thought that was interesting. That's a funny one too. So I'm a native Northwesterner. I went to um, college at Seattle Pacific University and um, my husband-to-be was admitted to a very prestigious architecture and design school back in Philadelphia. And at the time... Um, we are so naive when we we're young. Um, but at the time, you know, there were five medical schools all in Philadelphia. And I thought, well, how hard could this be? I'm sure I'll get into one of them. And so I only applied to medical schools in Philadelphia. Applied to five, got into two, picked the one with the most trees. <laughs> that was how I decided the course of the rest of my life. I can't believe we let 22-year-olds make these kind of choices. <laughs> It was a great school, though. If, if anybody from uh, MCP is listening, it was an awesome school. Well, that's good. Good. <laughs> it was a fit. Good. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. I wondered. And then why why family medicine? What I mean, you get exposed to a lot of different things in medical school. And when, what made you land there? Right, right. When I was in college, um, one of my uh, study buddies um, had a mom who, actually, she was a psychologist. And she heard that I wanted to be a family doctor. And she gave her daughter a book to give me. Um, the book was, I can't remember the author, but the book was called The Heirs to General Practice. And it was talking about the specialty of family medicine and how they were kind of taking over in a more complex medical environment from GPs, but still were the small town doc, the person that was your kind of medical home base. And that, um, that book just really um, kind of ignited that passion within me. Um, going back to the naivety of youth, um, there was no family medicine department at the medical school that I chose with all the trees. Um, but we started a family medicine interest group, and I um, did my family practice rotation by crossing the Benjamin Franklin Bridge when I was eight months pregnant to do my rotation in New Jersey um, to try and meet other family doctors in a, in a Philadelphia environment that was very much um, kind of centered on specialist medicine. And, um 
Yeah. So I just, it was another one of those things where it's like early in the process, somebody said or did something that just flipped a switch in my brain and um, kind of no looking back. Cool. I actually had somebody during a rotation say, it was during a pathology rotation. And she said to me, why do you want to be a family doctor? You have such a good vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Still want to be a family doc. Carry on. That's interesting. Yeah. What do you love about it now? Like, what's something you really... Um, On the day-to-day, what I really love is um, feeling like a detective. You know, when I send a patient to a specialist, I've kind of packaged them. I've done some initial labs. I've kind of, I've chosen this specialist because I think this is the body system that, you know, is necessary. But when the patients come to me, they've got nothing but this sort of random collection of clues And it's my job to look for patterns, to listen, you know, just like Columbo, you know, kind of looking at people squinty-eyed and going, here's what's going on, Um, and then deciding what else needs to happen. So it's that detective work that I think is um, the really interesting part of it. I had a friend recently refer to to specialists as partialists. Oh, that's funny. And I thought, that is, yeah, it's kind of a burn. Right. Um, Well, they're very good at On our colleagues. But yeah, yeah, it's like, this is my body system. Not only is, you know, this is my eyeball. Oh, no, wait, I only cover this part of the eyeball. And you kind of need that because medical technology is so complex. But we still need that, you know, 10,000-mile view, that detective who's stepping back and looking at all the clues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that literally every day. That, I mean, it's interesting because physical therapy is often that way, too. Yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't have the luxury of ordering labs or x-rays or MRI, so we often right. are looking at the bigger picture and how does that work, and mm-hmm. do, do these symptoms really line up with this diagnosis, or is there yeah. more here? Yeah, and I will confess, I send patients to you with, you know, diagnosis, shoulder pain. Right. You figure it out. I don't know. <laughs> and I actually appreciate that because then it's like, yep, okay, I'll figure out which muscles yeah. are involved and what, if it's impingement or rotator cuff or bursa- yeah. whatever, that's Pro- fine. Problem solving is a huge part of, I think, um, just job satisfaction. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, there's the, the longitudinal relationships. I have patients um, that I've known for 20 years, um, and they, they like that, too. They remind me, you know, oh, your daughter's a sophomore in college, but I remember when you were pregnant with her. Um, and so that's not all my patients, obviously, but yeah. that's, that's a really, that's the part that enriches me about the job yeah. on the long, on the long I love view. seeing my, my patients over the years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the fun part. Yeah. yeah. What about some challenges or things that are? Well, there are days when I wish that I was a partialist <laughs> because if they can't figure it out, they just get to say, it's not your colon. Go back to your family doctor. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the so the mysteries, the unsolved problems, um, frequently come back to me, and it's my responsibility to not you know be angry with the patient for not being fixed or right. or you know I you know I can't give up, um, and so that's the that's the biggest challenge is when um, difficult problems come back home right uh, to my office and I have to take another stab at it right yeah not everybody fits down the pathway yeah, yeah yeah or the challenge of kind of delicately approaching the idea that what they have might be a stress illness um, and that there might not be a quick fix, but rather something that they really have to, you know, partner with me right. on working to get better. Right. Well, that's those are, those that's are a biggie. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think some misconceptions that people have about family practice? Like what, mm-hmm. I think they don't really, like some people are very surprised if they haven't seen a family doctor before at all the things that we do. Um, my training was, you know, we, we say cradle to grave. So I delivered babies and did prenatal care. We, you know, learned about the, you know, the intricacies of hospice and then all the everything in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll have new patients come in and interview me and I'll be surprised that I would do their pap smears, um, that I could do well female care or that I, you know, could freeze this or, you know, cut that off or, you know, do, do other things that um, they were used to maybe being sent to a specialist for. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I don't deliver babies anymore, though. That was crazy. Yeah, because <laughs> they always come in the middle of the night. Frequently, yes. Yeah. I feel like that. It's like, yeah, because you're up at all hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How have you seen the role of family medicine change over the years? Or, or have you? Or maybe it's just the way in which it's delivered or that kind of any of those yeah. Tangents, if you want to touch on, I think I think different communities um, support their family doctors in different ways. 
Um, there's the rural family doctor that, you know, is the only doc in town. And of course, they're still doing that full spectrum of care. They're the everything doctor. Absolutely. Um, I think as, as Olympia becomes more urban or as, you know, the whole South Sound becomes more urban, um, there is a tendency more towards corporate medicine, um, the kind of nine to five doc in a box um, is more the ideal. That's what works well for the bigger corporations. Um, and so that's a big change for family practice. It's harder and harder to find a private practice um, sort of owning and running their own business. And so it takes, it takes the doctors out of the community a little bit um, as employed physicians um, and and I don't know if they see themselves in the community for decades, volunteering, contributing. I'm not sure. Um, but I feel like there's more um, mobility. You know, like I, I'm going to move from this practice to that practice, and maybe I'll go live in this town or that town. Or um, yeah, They don't necessarily stay in the same thing. For, for me, for me to, to leave my practice, I would have to sell my building. I, liquidate all my contracts. I mean, it's like, I can't just pick up and leave. <laughs> I suppose I could, but yeah. like I, my roots are way down deep. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's going to still be a thing. I hope it's still going to be a thing. Um, and so it just seems like every decade it's a, it's a little different. Yeah. The pendulum kind of swings around yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So kind of talk us through like what helped you decide to go a different route and open direct primary care and mm -hmm. that whole journey. Yeah. So um, right out of residency, I joined a multi-specialty clinic um, and operated in that role for about two years. Um, then the group of docs I was with um, bought out the practice from the multi-specialty clinic. So we were in private practice for a couple of years. And through that whole process, um, you know, we're plenty busy, lots of customers, and um, just... Um, kind of every year revenues were lower and lower. And part of that might've been increasing overhead. Some of that was reduced payments from, you know, our payer mix. And we had a consultant come out and said, oh, your overhead is awesome. Oh, you guys are lean and mean, good job. You need to see patients faster. Um, and here's how you do it. You give them one problem in 10 minutes and you make them come back and, and you just keep that schedule loaded every day and you have to see between 25 to 30 patients if you want to increase your revenues. And I thought, okay, I, I don't think I am comfortable with that model. What's next? And um, fortunately, my partner at the time um, attended a conference that talked about this kind of model. It was really just getting more um, out of the big city and into you know, a model that was within reach of any income bracket for mm -hmm. the most part. And that appealed to us. And so we made that transition. And um, that was... What year was that? Oh, it was 13 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd been thinking about it for, you know, 15 years um, before we really were ready to take the leap. Um, and it was it was a hard start, but um, definitely worth it. What does it allow you to do that you couldn't really do in the traditional model? Like, it sounds like more time with patients, but anything else that you're like, oh, I, yeah. this allowed me to do, you know, so maybe some things that were unexpected even. It really is just time. You know, when I when I do my meet, I always do a meet and greet appointment with my patients when they think they might want to come to see me because I just want to make sure they understand who we are and what we do. And um, and I always say, it's like, I am a bread and butter family doctor. There are no bells and whistles here. There are no special supplements for sale in the waiting room. Uh, it's just time. My shortest appointment is 30 minutes. I could never do that in a traditional uh, medical economy. Um, I would... I would make zero money and all of my employees would quit because I couldn't pay them. <laughs> so working directly for my patients, they're enabling me to create this perfect practice and then they're benefiting, you know, in terms of having a, a less hurried environment. Yeah. Yeah. You can actually have time to think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think for me here, yeah. like that's the biggest thing. I mean, having a whole 40 minute session with somebody, I really, I can really circle around what's going on mm -hmm. and truly listen. Like I would think that would be really important to really, with people that come to stuff where like, I have all of this information for you to like make sense of. Yeah. I yeah. don't know how you could do that in 10 minutes and be effective. No, I get to let my patients talk until they're all out of words. And then I can say anything else. 
And then they say some more words. And by the time they're done with all their words, I have pretty much all of my answers. And I can't tell you the number of times where I've kind of come to a conclusion in my mind, but I'm keeping my mouth shut and I let them keep talking because we have time. We have time to kind of breathe in the, in the encounter. And then they tell me something completely different where if I had sort of closed the conversation, I would have made a wrong diagnosis. So yeah. um, time is the special sauce. Yeah, I would agree. My, yeah. I think I mentioned to this you earlier that my parents went and had their physical at the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, yeah. And every single doctor was, and what else? Yeah. And what else? And, and what else? Since we had that conversation, I've been noticing when I say it, but I've been trying to say it more. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's such a powerful phrase. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I mean, at some point, my mom was just like, I have told you everything. There is nothing else. There is else. no what else. <laughs> no more what else. Yeah. So, so, they, so they were basically like, okay, I think we got it all. But they, they were. They were basically waiting until there yeah. were no more words. Yeah, yeah. It's so fun when my, when my patients first come, like maybe their first visit, they'll be, you know, like, like they'll barely get their bottoms in the seat and let me get the blood pressure cuff on them when they're just like, their information is falling out of them. I'm like, slow down. Take a breath. I'm just going to take your blood pressure, and we've got plenty of time to talk. And then, like 20 minutes in, the fun thing is also like watching them look at their watch because they've got somewhere they've got to be. <laughs> I just love that. They're like, no, I have enough time. It's you. Yeah. It's going to be rushing. Like, am I am I holding you back? Do you have another appointment? <laughs> That's good, though. I mean, you yeah. probably solve things in in some ways quicker by doing it that way. I I'd like to think so. Yeah. Or more effectively, more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is there anything in this particular model or setup that you you don't do that you were able to do before, or is it just just a change? Like just. I think because the the point of these practices is that it allows them to be smaller. Um, if there are things that you're not doing frequently in medicine, you probably should not be doing them. Take delivering babies, for instance. So um, I've been doing this practice for 13 years, and I know that because the last baby I delivered is 13 years old. <laughs> so that that had to go, um, and that you know actually I joke, but that was that was an important part of my practice, and so that makes me a little bit sad. So I'm really not full spectrum family practice in the traditional sense now. Um, another thing was you know like I I take care of normal female health, but I don't do a lot of abnormal things. So there's something called colposcopy that we do for abnormal pap smears, and and I sold my colposcope. It's like I'm not you know if I'm not doing a couple a month, then I shouldn't be doing them. Um, right. So those were those were ones that were a little bit hard to give up. It was hard to let go of that that kind of. There's a little bit of a machismo in being full spectrum family practice, mm -hmm. um, and I did have to give that up a little bit. Right, but there's wisdom in that because if you're not doing it all the time, it's probably not exactly. I want to. I want to do what I can do well. Yeah. Um, and the other just fact of life is, you know, I'm almost 51, and they say that your um, patient panel will be no younger than 20 years younger than you. Now that's not really true for us right now, um, but you age your patients age, um, and so that's kind of a fact of life too. So I have some babies. Um, in the practice, but uh, we don't do newborns anymore. And, and so the, the little littles I miss a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess that kind of goes into the next question of like the kinds of patients you see and ages mm -hmm. and situations and like who would tend to benefit from this model or, you know, just so our listeners kind of know, they might not even thought of this as an option yeah. of, of what this looks like. So if you want to kind of right. run with that a little bit. I think when I when we designed this practice, when we kind of put the parts and pieces together, it was for us, selfishly. It was for our schedules, our sanity, our desire to really feel good about the job that we were doing as physicians. And so it's kind of, um, you know, those ink blot tests, the Rorschach's blot, where you, you know, what you see in it is sort of says more about you. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what our practice is. So there are people who, who are attracted to our practice because it, um, you know, it's, it's kind of extra, you know, like I can talk to my doctor and they're going to pick up the phone and I can call them from, you know, Sun Valley and send her a picture of my rash and she's going to call in a prescription to a pharmacy. And um, it's, um, I'm missing the word that I'm trying to think of. Um, but it's, it's an amenity. That's the word. 
So yeah. they see our practice as an amenity. Yeah. Um, they have disposable income and they want to spend part of it on really what they see as excellent healthcare. Um, but I have patients who are in all walks of life who may have had um, like a health scare or a time where they felt like they got lost in the shuffle or, um, you know, they just really want a little something extra to, to make them feel more secure about their health care. And so they see what they need in our practice because we know them. We say their name, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of part of our family. And, and that also can take down levels of medical anxiety as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are folks who come and see us for addictions. Um, they like kind of the, the um, discreet nature of a direct medical practice. And so they come to see us for their alcohol or opiate addiction. Um, and that's an important part of our practice as well, which really increases the diversity of our patient population. Yeah, and we also do house calls. And so we have that, that population of shut-ins, like people who cannot, for health reasons, leave their home. Um, and so obviously they see what they need in, in our practice. Um, sure. That's difficult, more difficult to find um, in a traditional medical environment. Right. So it really has created tremendous diversity, and I didn't expect that. Sounds good. I mean, it's in yeah. a good, very good way. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, I would think the people that are stuck at home, that would be a real comfort to have that service. Mm -hmm. Seems to be, yeah. Um, what do patients say when they switch from like the traditional model to joining your practice? Like, what are comments they often make or that surprise them that they hadn't thought about? That I mean, I'm sure there's some things that come to mind to mm -hmm. you. The first time that they call the office and the receptionist says, oh, can you hold please? And then I pick up the phone. That's a total freak out. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bother you. He's like, I'm at my desk. You know? And so the first time that they just get to talk to me or they're calling after hours and it's just me that calls them right back. Um, so I love, I love surprising people like that. That's really, um, that gives me great pleasure. Um, the, um, the other thing though, I think, you know, sometimes couples will sign up and the wife is the driver of healthcare. And so she comes in and says, you know, we're going to do this. And you know, Ron, you're just, you're going to sign up with Dr. K too. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, and, and he says, you know, I never go to the doctor. I don't know why I'm doing this. And I was like, well, okay, you know, nobody's twisting your arm. But what, what I'll hear later is, you know, I, I've called you so many times or, you know, emailed you or, you know, I happen to have this issue and, and I was able to get right in and see you. I've never, I've never had this much access to my provider. So some people don't go to see the doctor very much, not because they're well, but because they're busy. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it doesn't fit into your day. And so you kind of wonder, or you spend a lot of time on WebMD or, you know, talking to your neighbor about what would they, what do they think? And that's why you're not accessing your healthcare provider very much because it's just inconvenient. And so people are surprised by how much they do use our services throughout the year. Yeah. I would think that the convenience factor and the experience factor are mm -hmm. two of the big ones. Yeah, yeah. So I say, you know, message me through the portal. Don't don't spend all your time on WebMD. Let's just figure it out. <laughs> Good old WebMD. Yeah. Oh, it's it's very helpful. I go on WebMD yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it is. But it is funny how like <laughs> everyone's default. Is the right, default. right. And the default answer is you probably have cancer. Yeah. You'd better call your doctor. Yeah. <laughs> At the end, a little disclaimer every single time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or it's cancer. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Can you explain a little more detail of like how, um, to our listeners, like how it works to to join your type of practice? Mm -hmm. You know that kind of process and like a membership fee or how like what's it included and does it? Can you use your health savings account? Like kind of those yeah. commonly or frequently asked questions. Yeah, kind of the how do we interface with traditional insurance right. too? Yeah. Yes. So um, the only the only income to my practice is a monthly membership fee. And that covers everything that I do in my office with my brain, my hands, or stuff that I own. And I think that makes it pretty clear to folks. So I don't own a mammogram machine. I don't own lab equipment. Um, I don't have a stocked pharmacy. I don't own a helicopter that could take you to Harborview if you needed it. So we really strongly encourage our patients to maintain their insurance. Now, some of them may be able to have a more high deductible plan 
leaves a lot more money in their pocket. And then we are a small dollar amount um, that really takes care of probably 90% of their healthcare needs. Um, we never like have extra charges. There are different practices in different states that will also bill insurance, but that's actually not legal in the state of Washington. The Office of the Insurance Commissioner has created very good, clear guidelines that let me know that I'm, you know, a legitimate business and I'm not, you know, breaking any laws doing what I'm doing. Um, and then I promise not to bill insurance. And so I've opted out of Medicare completely, which keeps me in line with also the, the laws regarding Medicare. And then my patients can use their medical services, their health insurance, because I'll make referrals and I'll write prescriptions and, and, uh, you know, order studies and things that, um, you know, in this, in this, expensive healthcare environment are not things that you would want to pay for out of your own pocket. No. Yeah. But we try and make wiser health choices. Um, so I think in general, um, honestly with, with what we charge per month, if I keep you out of the emergency room one time, you have more than paid for your membership for the year. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 So I think the, when people really think about it, um, the economy of it works. Um, it's not really an amenity. It's a smart choice that helps you use your health insurance that is the high dollar expense to its to its best advantage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think so. And then you asked about the HSA. Yeah. Um, from your work mouth to our legislators' ears. Um, <laughs> so HSAs, it seems like that would be a really reasonable, logical expense. It's health care. It's like my all my healthcare pretty much from my family doctor, but membership fees are not considered a, um, they're not called out specifically in the tax code as a health expense. Okay. And there is this beautiful, well-written piece of legislation that has been sort of circling the, the um, hallowed halls of our federal government for years. <laughs> oh, great. You know, if, if, Anybody's listening to this right now, there are more important things to call your legislators about. Um, but boy, we really wish that somebody would just vote on this because then it would it would basically update the tax code so that you could very easily, with a very clear conscience, with a smile on your accountant's face, just use your HSA card to pay for this membership fee. I think, you know, it's um, there are HRAs or other health employee health plans where people have specifically gotten permission to use those dollars. I don't know what some of my patients are doing in terms of their conversations with their accountants sure. and tax attorneys. Sure. It certainly would be easy to just sort of deduct that amount from your HSA. But if you were in an audit and somebody really had a, had a burr in their saddle, right. technically that would probably not be good. Yeah. <laughs> of course. How is my doctor not healthcare? I don't understand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't know if there's, it probably doesn't matter if they try to pay for their whole year membership up front or versus yeah. every month. It probably doesn't. It doesn't for, really, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And the, you know, people will say, well, just tell me how much it cost. My, how much did my visit cost? Well, it's literally $0. We have to have a fee schedule to show to insurance companies if we want to, you know, have a contract. And so every single thing I do. Wart removal, zero dollars. Pap smear, zero dollars. Half hour appointment, zero dollars. It's all free. <laughs> right. So we can't really even give you an invoice. Yeah. So. Yeah. I could see where that would be a little bit challenging on yeah. that side of it. But yeah. really, you're saving them money in the end and like saving them from different yeah. visits of going to the ER or yeah. having something escalate. I think most people figure it pencils out mm -hmm. and it'll just be it'll just be so nice and, and things will change that way. The tax code will ultimately get updated, but last I checked, glaciers were actually changing faster <laughs> than the tax code. And that's that's not a happy thing. <laughs> no. no, it takes a bit of a um, undertaking for the tax code. To yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. um, are there anything else that, in terms of misconceptions that people might have about direct primary care or concierge medicine in the past? Like are there things that sometimes you run into where you're like, Oh, I need to explain this to them. This, I don't know. I'm just curious if there's anything else that comes to mind. Yeah. I think most of the misconceptions like people, people nowadays, um, there's been enough out there about DPC practice that people get it. It's in the news. There's TV shows about it kind mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. um, and so people understand now um, the biggest misconceptions I think are with my colleagues 
Um, I think that um, there's definitely the perception for people that you know don't know Dr. Richie and I very well that we are we are sort of really in a boutique or concierge practice that we take care of the wealthy. <laughs> Oh, interesting. The wealthy. I love the wealthy. They're people just like all my other patients. But that's not like our, um, that's not our ammo. Um, there are no, you know, marble showers and monogrammed uh, bathrobes after your physical or <laughs> just not, it's not a, not a thing. Yeah. So that's a big misconception. Um, and then the other, the other um, misconception is um, that like being on call 24 seven, is you know devastating and, and life ruining. Um, I'm available, but most of our patients' needs are met like during office hours. And so my beeper, I hope I'm not jinxing, jinxing myself, but my beeper is super quiet at night and really quiet on the weekends most of the time. Um, so being on call 24-7 is like saying, oh, you're on call 24-7 to your mom because she could call you anytime she wanted. Well, does she? No, probably not. So it's just, you know, I'm, I'm available to my patient family and it does not feel like a burdensome kind of on-call experience. Yeah. I wondered about that. Yeah. I did. I was curious, like, but probably because you, the visits and everything that you tackle up in, in the clinic, you you actually kind of head some of that off. You already had your complaint. I mean, unless something urgent really comes up, a lot of it. I think it's a, I think it's a combination of things. I think number one, we sort of you know, do a pretty good job of saturating the need for our patients during, you know, the Monday through Friday. But also, um, you know, I have a personal relationship with my patients. And so they're probably not going to casually call me at 10 o'clock on Saturday night about a rash because they know it's me. Right. And they know I go to bed at nine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also it's, it's numbers. When I was on call in a traditional practice, um, you know, it was seven other physicians who had between two and 3,000 patients. And just statistically, you're going to be on the phone all weekend. Uh, so yeah. That makes a big difference. It's, it's my little family. It's my small town right. um, that I'm taking care of. And every person who calls me is known by me. And we have trust and, you know, I can, I can picture their face and I can picture their problem list and... Um, you know, so it's uh, it's an easier, much easier interaction. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about your practice or um, a, anything more about direct? Are you anything else-ing me? Yes, I am. <laughs> anything else? <laughs> this is perfect. That was right on cue. <laughs> no, I think your questions were awesome. And I really um, appreciated the uh, opportunity to talk more about something that I really feel passionate about which is good primary care. Yes. So we're going to take a little break right now to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll come back to talking about our real topic of today of how much alcohol is really safe to have. So we will go ahead and break for that. And now for a special announcement from Stay Healthy South Sound. On Wednesday, July 10th at 6 p.m., Stay Healthy South Sound will be performing a free workshop on walking with urban trekking poles at Capitol Lake. You can RSVP at info at PenrosePT.com. That's I-N-F-O at PenrosePT.com. Please bring your own trekking poles or let us know that you need them in your RSVP. And we'll provide you with some resources on where you can find them. We look forward to seeing you on Wednesday, July 10th at 6 p.m. at Capitol Lake for the Trekking Pole Workshop. And now back to the show. All right. Now that we're back from our break, we're going to dive into um, how much alcohol really is safe to have and a little more specifics on the difference of wine, hard liquor, beer. So wherever you want to start with that. All right. Well, this is where I go from being Dr. K to Dr. Buzzkill. <laughs> I just have to apologize in advance. Um, one, of the, one of the questions a lot of my patients ask me is, you know, if I'm trying to lose weight, what's the what's the best alcohol to drink? And that's a fairly practical question. And so it's important to know what um, different types of alcohol compare to, you know, what amounts of other types. So you can sort of compare apples to apples. And so it's important to know that one shot of um, of liquor or spirits is the same as about five ounces of wine. 
um, eight ounces of malt liquor. What's malt liquor? Well, that's like a Zima or something like that. Um, 10 ounces of beer. Um, and uh, so those are sort of the comparisons. The uh, caloric amounts, I guess if you really wanted to think of your drinks and your cocktail hour that way, would be um, a shot of vodka, about 1.4 ounces, um, is approximately um, 97 calories. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to have a little cocktail, I'm not really doing shots. So if you're drinking hard liquor, most of the time you're using a mixer, and that can get pretty spendy in the um, in the calorie department. And so an 8-ounce margarita, which is a pretty modest-sized margarita, is about 450 calories. Mm, and lots of sugar. And a lot of sugar. Um, if you are a big fan of the IPAs and you're you know, doing a little microbrew, um, that IPA is going to set you back probably about 200 calories. That's a lot. Um, if you're feeling virtuous and you go for the Bud Light, that's 110 calories. So that actually does make a significant difference if, if you can tolerate that kind of a beverage. <laughs> um, I'd be like, I'm not going to bother, thanks. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, there's a joke. Um, the woman walks into the restaurant and she orders a Corona Light. And the bartender hands her a big glass of ice water. <laughs> I think my father-in-law told me that one. Yeah, that's about <laughs> how I feel about that one. <laughs> and then the the virtuous glass of red wine. Rice, the it's one that's so good for you has all the antioxidant. Yes, the one your cardiologist is drinking. Right, that is about 125 to 200 calories. And just to give you a visual, that's your smallest wine glass in your cupboard filled less than half full. That's five ounces. That's pretty small. For your podcast listeners, I have to um, explain that you are wearing a sad face right yes. now. <laughs> yes. I like my red wine. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So so then the other question that people ask is, you know, not just the calorie question, but so what, what type of alcohol is the healthiest? Like, shouldn't I be drinking more red wine? Shouldn't I make the effort to increase the red wine in my daily consumption? And my answer to that is sadly no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So so the reason that red wine got such a, a sort of sterling reputation in the healthcare community is um, because of the the sort of study of the Mediterranean diet. So people did a you know survey of different populations, and those who are sort of the cultures that are clustered around the Mediterranean seem to have great healthy longevity, and and so they're looking for reasons. And so the Mediterranean diet actually is a very healthy diet. There is definitely a fair consumption of red wine in these cultures, the non-Islamic ones that are around the Mediterranean, um, and that seemed to correlate with good health and longevity as well. The idea, the thought behind what might be causing the, um, the healthy benefits of red wine, because it's probably not the alcohol, they, they found uh, that polyphenols and resveratrol seem to be the two healthy ingredients. Um, but you can you can get those from your diet too. Yeah, that's more vegetables. <laughs> yeah, so right, I, I looked it up and resveratrol can be found in peanuts, pistachios, grapes with the skins on, not a surprise, blueberries, cranberries, and our friend dark chocolate. Oh, at least dark chocolate gets to stay. Yes, and you'll be happy. Uh, the other thing, the polyphenols, dark chocolate is on that list too as well as uh, cloves, blueberries, beans, actually all berries, um, all of the nuts, and soy. So, yes, red wine has those healthful antioxidant ingredients, um, but you can also get it from, you know, food, some peanuts and some red grapes, <laughs> minus the alcohol. Right. So, so, I don't know. Should we drink alcohol at all? Yeah, that is the question, isn't it? <laughs> Get to it. So I think um, the the one thing that we don't really talk about um, when we're looking at uh, consumption of alcohol is, um, you know, what are the other risks? We know that there's a little bit of heart health involved in red wine. Um, we know that you can sort of balance your alcohol consumption for, you know, caloric needs. Um, but there was a survey of just people in the United States 
and pretty much everybody agreed that um, cigarettes are related to cancer. Yes, we can all say yeah. Yeah, yeah, unless you're a major Philip Morris stockholder. Um, but this survey showed that 70% of people surveyed in the United States did not know that alcohol was associated with cancer. Before our conversation earlier, you know, planning this podcast, did you have any inkling? I think it's one of those things, it's a, it's a chemical, it's a toxin, and I kind of thought, well, you can't have too much. I mean, you know what it does to the liver. Right, so, right. That's pretty well known. Yeah, Well known, but, and I think I would go ahead and say there's a limit of how much, because I could see that being linked to cancer and not be surprised, but yeah. it's kind of a, I would say that's a background noise mm-hmm. for me, if not, not up in the front, like smoking is super obvious. Right, right. We really take that one for granted. So, so it's true, though, that alcohol consumption in varying levels is associated with multiple types of cancer. Um, we know that um, people who consume more alcohol in a sort of a dose-dependent fashion have a higher incidence of mouth cancer, um, esophagus cancer, cancer of the liver associated with cirrhosis. Uh, breast cancer for women is actually markedly increased by regular alcohol consumption. And then colon cancer as well gets a little bit of a bump. And it's interesting, daily drinking seems to be the one that's most associated with um, oral and esophagus cancers. That's the tube that goes between your mouth and your stomach. And so beer and hard liquor are both associated with a 20% increase in esophagus cancer. That was a real shocker for me. Interesting. Oddly, in cancer of the esophagus, wine does not seem to be as big of an issue. But you can reduce your risk of those types of cancers just by giving yourself some breaks, not being an every single day habitual drinker. And then there was a there was a British medical journal that really wanted almost as sort of a public service um, stunt to determine how does alcohol compare with smoking in terms of risk of all cancers. And, um, and they found, they decided to report it in terms of how many cigarettes in a bottle of wine. Just the visual on that one is kind of gross. Right. Um, but what they determined, and this is studying big populations of people, non-smokers and drinkers and smokers and non-drinkers. Um, and they found that the risk of a consumption of one bottle of wine a week equals smoking five cigarettes a week for men. And for women, the risk was a little higher. We're smaller and we don't metabolize alcohol as well in general. And so one bottle of wine equaled 10 cigarettes smoked in a week. So that's a, that's a really striking visual because we're all like, oh, I would never smoke. Well, some of us are like that. But then, you know, sometimes these statistics don't like have meaning um, until we really sort of state them in different ways. Um, So if you took a thousand completely non-smoking women who drank just one glass of wine a day, 14 extra out of that 1,000 would get cancer. Wow. And for men, 10 extra out of that 1,000 would develop a cancer that they would not otherwise have had statistically if they weren't drinking that daily glass of wine. Cue weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right. <laughs> so, so if you drank three bottles a week, that would be about equal to 23 cigarettes a week, which is more than a pack. So one thing I have to pause and make really clear here, cancer is not the only thing that happens when you smoke cigarettes. I'm not saying that one is overall equal to the other. Lung disease, reduced ability to exercise, all those kinds of things are also a big issue with smoking that, of course, you don't see with alcohol. Right, right. Um, but it does help people put it in perspective. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've never heard this al- analogy before. So. Yeah, it was a fairly recent study, and it kind of hit all the, all the men's magazines and health journals because it's just a shocking way to think about it. Um, and the other thing is that, um, so the American Cancer Society has kind of designated, you know, what is considered moderate drinking, sort of that amount where you can kind of pat yourself on the back and say, okay, I'm good, I'm average. Right. And it's um, it's two drinks a day for men, woohoo, and uh, one drink a day for women. Now, the disconnect is that, okay, here's a population study that just recently came out. The American Cancer Society is like, you know, like picture this giant cruise ship with multiple captains. And for them to create 
a recommendation or a guideline takes meetings and consensus opinion. And, you know, it, they're just not moving with the times all the time. And, and often their, their recommendations are sort of broad and general. So it's going to take a while for them to change their current recommendation. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know if I would completely pat myself on the back if you're a guy that's drinking, you know, two beers a day every day after after a, a right. long hard day of work. Right. Yep. And then, <laughs> speaking of like recent research, so there was a there was a paper published recently in the 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 Lancet, the Inter- Internal Medicine Journal, highly regarded, peer reviewed, um, and this study was. It was more of sort of an epidemiology study, meaning the statistics of how people die. And, and based on that, their recommendation was that the, the only healthy amount of alcohol consumption is zero. Oi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. um, and, the, and the diagnoses that they cited that were clearly affected by alcohol consumption were heart disease, cancer, Cirrhosis, diabetes, epilepsy, injuries, that's a big one, for, especially for youth, um, violence, and motor vehicle trauma. Um, and so their, their recommendation was, statistically, zero alcohol would be a good thing for ourselves and our society. Bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. Any questions about what we've gone over so far? <laughs> no, I, I was surprised when I looked up a little bit, just even, you know, how it even affects sleep disorders. Like it was estimated $18 billion in the U.S. spent on alcohol-related sleep disorders because oh, people yeah. resort to alcohol to relax. Mm-hmm. But then you have to take more to get the same effect, right? And yeah. so that ends up creating a sleep disorder and they don't sleep as well, Right. Right. So if you want to touch on that a little bit, I guess. Yeah, you bet. So um, it's really common to like have a glass of wine or a shot of whiskey or something to fall asleep. Um, and it kind of works. Like it relaxes you, makes you more sleepy. And so your sleep latency, the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep is definitely going to be shorter. But interestingly, what happens during that first stage of sleep is that um, you actually go into deep sleep, which seems like a good thing, right? And we need some deep sleep. Yeah, but you have dramatically less REM sleep, and that's the dream state. It's kind of the active stage of sleep. And in ways that we probably don't even fully realize, that REM sleep is the part that we, our bodies and our minds find really restorative. And it's where we kind of work out you know, problems from our day and solve, solve problems and things like that. So alcohol is actually robbing you of that REM sleep. And then, you know, a couple of glasses of wine don't really last eight hours. And so after our body is done metabolizing that alcohol, we actually have a rebound awakening effect. And that's that 3 a.m., oh, I had a glass of wine with dinner too late. And here I am, 3 a.m., planning my day, checking my shopping list. (laughs) My brain won't (laughs) shut off. Yeah, and so it's super counterproductive. And so you've had less restorative sleep, probably less than you would like. And the only benefit you're really getting from that alcohol is you don't have to lie in bed awake quite so long waiting to fall asleep. So it's, um, it's a, not a very good trade-off. Right. Especially when you consider all the other things we just talked about. Right. Yeah. Well, and then I can see where that can fall into um, dependency and then even, you know, how, I mean, alcoholism is, it's definitely prevalent still. The opioid addiction is getting all the publicity right now. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you do see alcoholics in your practice as well, I'm sure. Yeah, and yeah. The, the pathway in which they get there. Do you want to talk about just kind of com- maybe some commonalities that you see, different ways people fall into that? Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, so uh, in my practice, we do treat a, a variety of addictions. And I would say like in the press, you know, alcoholism is sort of that bastard stepchild of the addiction industry right now. We're all really, really focused on opiates. And and it's um, it's easy to forget that something that's legal and you can get at the grocery store um, can actually become a problem and uh, run your life as an addiction. So there's a lot of um, screening tools that I use in my practice. Um, there's a short questionnaire called the CAGE questionnaire. Um, but then there's another one um, that I've started using called the FAST score. And what you want a screening tool to be is something that you can administer to everybody that comes in the door. 
Um, you don't want to judge somebody saying, hmm, you look like an alcoholic. Right. I'm going to ask you some of these questions. So we just screen everybody at their annual physical. And um, it's a very simple four-question screening test. Let me just read the questions. Yeah, great. So the first one is a biggie. Um, it says, how often have you had six or more units, if female, or eight more, if male, on a single occasion in the last year? So just to kind of frame what a unit is, one bottle of wine is nine units in terms of servings. And so if you have ever polished off a bottle of wine in short order all by yourself, that's a yes. Um, the second question is, how often during the last year have you failed to do what was normally expected from you because of your drinking? And all of these questions have sort of a graded answer. So never, less than monthly, monthly, weekly, daily. And each one of those questions has sort of a score. The third question is, how often during the last year have you been unable to remember what happened the night before because you had been drinking? I also like the way that they, they couch it in the, in the last year. Because when I ask these questions without that, it's like, well, in college, I dot, dot, dot. It's like, okay. Now you're 50. <laughs> Tell me about the last year. And then the last one is, uh, has a relative or friend, doctor, or other health worker been concerned about your drinking or suggested that you cut down? And that one, of course, is, you know, people's, the outside perspective matters. Um, you might be annoyed with the question or the concern, but, um, but that they've noticed something, I think, is, a, is a, an indicator. And the the reason that it's important, I think, to identify um, people with addictions and dependence on alcohol um, is because there's treatment. Like, I, you know, I wouldn't run a test for a disease that I have no cure for. That would just be mean. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in um, treatment of alcohol dependency, we recognize more now than ever that there's really a spectrum. So there's that kind of casual, you know, I had a glass of wine to fall asleep and then it didn't work as well. And so now I'm having two and now it's really hard to stop. That sometimes just takes awareness. Like you just hold up a mirror and say, Ooh, this is the risk of alcohol. Ooh, I didn't know that. I think I'll cut down. Right. And that's, that's not really severe dependence. It's just overuse of alcohol. That's kind of happened gradually over time. Then there's that really strong, at the other end of the spectrum, that strong sort of biological imperative to have an altered mental status. Um, I've heard a lot of stories from my patients who I'm treating for addiction um, about like their first experience with opiates. You know, I got my wisdom teeth out. I was, you know, 16 years old. The doctor gave me Percocet and it was like, where has this been all my life? And then they're overusing it, they're buying it from friends, and suddenly they're off to the races with their addiction. Alcohol, same thing. You know, somebody has their, their first, um, you know, experience with intoxication, and they'll say, my anxiety was gone, I was social, I felt relaxed for the first time in my whole life, and they're just off to the races, and alcohol becomes sort of an integral part of their neurochemistry. So that, that is the group of folks that are probably going to do best with some form of a medication-assisted treatment with their addiction. And that's where talking to your doctor about addiction or your alcohol use is so, so helpful. Um, we have all kinds of medications that are kind of off-label, not necessarily FDA-approved for treating alcohol addiction. Um, topiramate, baclofen, gabapentin, Depakote. Um, but then also there are some specifically FDA-approved meds uh, for treating addiction. Um, naltrexone is remarkably effective, and it can be a daily pill, or it's also given as a monthly shot. So you don't really have to wake up every morning and decide you're going to take your med. It's just in you. And the naltrexone, um, even though it binds opiate receptors and is also used for opiate addiction, it just seems to make you think less about alcohol. It doesn't make you sick when you drink. Um, in fact, there's one study that um, did naltrexone, daily dose of oral naltrexone, and you could just drink whatever you wanted. Um, and there were no sort of prohibitions or goals set or, or restrictions. And then people just sort of naturally drank less until they were, you know, at a, at a point where they could um, kind of um, see or conceive of a world where there was no alcohol in their lives. Right. Um, so the so the medication assistance is it's more than just the 
the sort of one you think of the typical ant abuse where ooh, I took a pill and now if I drink, I'll barf. So I guess I'll be good. Right. <laughs> that doesn't sound pleasant. That doesn't sound good at all. Yeah. So there's just a lot of things that your doctor can do for you or, or refer you to an addiction specialist if they don't feel comfortable in that realm. Right. And the one thing I really want to make uh, clear to your podcast listeners is that alcohol, if you're drinking at a high level and you decide to quit drinking all on your own, it can kill you. Alcohol withdrawal is potentially deadly. Um, and so it's really important that you, you know, consult with a doctor or, you know, have somebody um, help you uh, and gradually cutting back on your alcohol use is the safest thing. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. That yeah. You can really. It can cause uh, confusion, seizures, coma, and death. It's not common, but it's, it happens enough to, to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a good, that was a good question. Um any other questions about alcohol? I don't think so. I think that I was, I was kind of curious about the sleeping and um, mm -hmm. how people get into the into the whole process of addiction, and yeah. then just yeah. you know what was safe and so what, what the health kind of status was. And I now now know. we know. Now, now it's like know. oh man, zero is best. Zero is best, but daily is probably not a good idea. Um, and addiction is real. <laughs> yeah, that's the summary. <laughs> so somewhere in between there, probably most of us, uh, most of your listeners have at one point or another maybe had a few too many. Um, and so do you have any particular um, hangover cures, maybe from your wilder, younger from, days? You know, 20 years ago or so. Yeah. yeah. I what? just remember drinking a lot of water. Water, water, water. <laughs> that was Which water. The, yeah, lots of water. <laughs> and aspirin or Tylenol. Yeah, yeah. So dehydration really is probably one of the biggest um, biggest components of hangover. Um, but there's a lot of other things that go on too. Um, the um, alcohol increases your stomach acids. And so that's the unhappy tummy from the next day. Oh, yeah. Um, it tanks your blood sugar. Um, because it's such a simple carbohydrate, it goes right into your bloodstream and your insulin just goes nuts and then crashes oh. you. So that's a big part of the just blaze the next day. And also probably where you get the, the, the kind of conventional wisdom that a big kind of fatty breakfast the next morning would be a good idea. I'm not sure about that, though. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that just the toxins, there really are toxins in alcohol, especially the darker brown uh, liquors, um, just cause inflammation. Um, you can have joint pain, muscle aches, migraine, all those kinds of things the following day after you've uh, overconsumed alcohol. So moderation is probably the best idea. But if you can consume no more than one alcoholic beverage or unit um, per hour, per hour. <laughs> with water, preferably with food, because that also, disin you know, being drunk quickly really disinhibits you. To, to drink more or eat more uh, than you ought to. So having it paced and consumed with food is probably the safest way to go. And if you are a person that, that you know, easily gets inflammation in your joints or, or is prone to migraine, um, having a little bit of ibuprofen before you, before you hit the hay is not a bad idea. All good tips. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. you know, things happen. Yeah. Well, it just sounds like in general, now that we know even more and relating it to cigarettes, it's like, all right, I think the takeaway is that red wine, it should be reserved for special occasions mm -hmm. or rarely, but not, not something that's like, okay, every other day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the tough one. So, so can I ask, I mean, like how much would you typically consume? I say right now we're so busy with our kids that. Like to sit down and enjoy uh -huh. a delicious meal and red wine with it, like it's just not even practical right now. So it's yeah. it's on the weekends primarily, and it's usually when we we go out to dinner. Mm -hmm. But we had in the past when it, we weren't quite as crazy schedule wise, you know, we might have a glass of wine with dinner three to four times a week. Mm -hmm. You know, and when we were traveling without kids, we would share a bottle with dinner every night in Portugal. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I look right. back and I'm like, yeah, there's seasons where we definitely were, you know, had more, but yeah. now I think just the busyness of life right now is it's just not practical. Like I don't want to sit yeah. down and swig a cup, a glass of wine. It's yeah. I'm not enjoying it. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's for it's for enjoyment, not chemically coping with stress or right. insomnia or that kind of thing. Right. I think that's a really good place, a good sort of posture towards alcohol. Um, I, you know, my pet theory for why red wine um, is associated with longevity as part of the Mediterranean diet is because it kind of signals leisure. Like, you know, we can sit and enjoy our meal and sip a glass of red wine. And, you know, it means that we're not running around in our type A lives, which is probably not so good for our hearts either. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've wondered about that with the Mediterranean diet. I'm like, I bet there's also just slower pace. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. My life rule is the drink I need is the one that stays in the bottle. <laughs> yeah. If if it's a sunny day and I'm on my deck, I'm going to have a little Moscow Mule. Yes. <laughs> that is that is um, one of our favorites. Yeah. And actually, in the Pacific Northwest, if I only drank on sunny days, I think I would be pretty darn healthy. Right? <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> we would have an advantage there. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, good. Well, thanks so much for all this and yeah. joining the podcast. Yeah, I hope um, I hope I left a ray of hope and not a, just a bunch of depressed listeners. Right. <laughs> well, they'll be informed listeners, though. That's right. And they're making informed decisions. They make informed choices. That's right. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up, let's ask you a few questions about the South Sound. What is your favorite restaurant? So my favorite new restaurant is Chelsea Farms Oyster Bar. They have their own oyster beds, and it's like oyster bed to table. Just oh. from ice to ice at the oyster bar, you watch them shuck it, and then they plate it for you in a big pan of ice. And they've got all other kinds of like really local, fresh, um, just nice, simple, good-tasting foods. A half a dozen oysters and a little glass of uh, sparkling white wine is not a bad choice. Yes. <laughs> but only on a sunny day. Right. <laughs> sunny day. Yeah, yeah. And then what's on your bucket list to do in the South Sound that you have not done yet? Hmm. This is, this is embarrassing to admit, but I have not been to Mount St. Helens. And I really want to go on a sunny day where I can really see the crater and take my time and, and kind of appreciate the, the awesomeness of nature. And, yeah. and also now I've heard that there's so much regrowing that you can really appreciate um, just the amazing ability of the earth to heal itself. Yeah. So that's my bucket list. I've got to make it to Mount St. Helens. It's stupid that I haven't gone. Well, there's a lot to see and do here. So I know, I know. On your list. Um, how about a favorite place or thing to do outside that you re recommend everyone get out and do or visit? I, there are just some really, really favorite hikes um, and good memories. So I love the hike to Lena Lake up on the peninsula. And Dungeness Spit is another favorite because I love to walk on the beach. And that's just all kinds of beach. Plus, it's a, it's a nature preserve, so you can see lots of cool birds. And then the... Old Faithful, for me, is the Nisqually Wildlife Refuge. Oh, that's It's so use. close, and you can just do it multiple times a year and, and appreciate all the seasons. But each one of those places, actually, I um, my favorite hikes I've all found on the uh, app, the, the iPhone app, All Trails. Um, and you can just explore, and actually never, around here, you'd never have to take the same hike twice. Yeah, you, you don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's my go-to. Yeah, that's a good one. And then your best tip for people to stay healthy and fit in the South Sound. Well, you've got to find something that you enjoy doing, obviously, to keep doing it. But I think because of our long, wet winters, you have to find an indoor exercise. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself when I'm saying this, um, whether it's an indoor exercise bike or a calisthenic routine or beach body or daily burn, something that gets you active most days of the week regardless of the weather outside. Because yeah. um, my heart just sinks when I hear a patient tell me that, you know, I say, well, do you like to exercise? And they say, oh, yeah, what do you like to do? Oh, I like to go ride my bike. Um, so do you commute to work? No, just on sunny days. It's like, oh, <laughs> you're not going to be so super healthy. Right. <laughs> and the yes. other thing you can do is just make friends with the rain. Yeah. Um, get those rain pants, get that Helly Hansen totally waterproof parka on and just go. Yeah, once you're out there and moving, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of a peaceful, peaceful place to take a long walk in the rain. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, where can people find out more about you? So, list your website. Oh, okay. It's uh, www.vantagephysicians.net. 
And you have a website as well. That's yeah, the website. website. And then yep. phone and location. If you want to give Our that. telephone is 360-438-1161. And we're located kind of in that little just doctor dentist offices on uh, Lillian Enzyme Road by St. Peter's Hospital in Olympia. And if they want to follow you on Facebook versus Instagram. So our Facebook page is Vantage Physicians. So you can just search us by that. Um, and we have a very active Facebook phase, our uh, page. My, uh, my office manager is always putting on good little healthy tips and articles. Oh, um, our Instagram is just for fun. But I think you should follow that too because fun is important. Yes. And that's Vantage Fur Babies. <laughs> I love it. That is literally just pictures of our pets. Yeah. That's very fun. <laughs> I love it. Uh-huh. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. This has been really, really fun. Good. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast, brought to you by Penrose & Associates Physical Therapy. If you want some free tips to implement right away on various problems like knee pain, back pain, running injuries, and many more issues, then jump on over to PenrosePT.com and download the free report that fits your needs. You will receive helpful tips right away and have the choice to email in for further questions and set up a free phone consultation. You can reach us at 360-456-1444 and info at PenrosePT.com. You can stay connected with us at StayHealthySouthSound.com and Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast.